There's a small community in southwestern Louisiana that's described by the people who grew up there as a kind of Eden. Everyone fished, hunted, and grew a little vegetable garden. But now, that's almost entirely gone. I'll never be able to come back home with my children and say, this is where mommy grew up. You know, you don't even put a monument there, a, a landmark or something to say, this is the Mossville community that was established back in the early 1700s by freed slaves. Just something there to remind us that we were important in this community. You're listening to Gravy. Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a collaboration with a group of New Orleanian filmmakers on a story that takes us out to the southwestern corner of Louisiana, near Lake Charles. It's a story of gardens, industry, and race. There's something Haki Vincent wants to show me. So this piece of land starts from that barbershop and ends at this curb coming up. We're in his pickup truck with a cracked windshield, driving through the woods of Mossville, Louisiana. Aki is 82 years old, with long white dreadlocks that he keeps either tucked up into his cap or wrapped around his neck like a scarf made of hair. True. He's pulled the truck over by a fence, which has a large mural tacked up on it. This is the uh, Mossville family reunion sign. It features a drawing of a giant tree labeled Mossville in all caps. On each branch is written a name. You got the Morrows, you got the Williams, you got the Praters, you got the Braxtons, you got the Rigmaidens, you got the Hartmans, you got the Ledoux, you got the Mosses, you got the Vincents. These are the founding families of Mossville, whose names are already familiar to me just from driving around. The streets here are all named after them. So my family, the Eli Vincents, were uh, one of the founders of Mossville. Mm, they've been here since the 1700s. And that's when they start working with other ex-slaves on building Mossville. Mossville was founded by former slaves who'd been emancipated from Louisiana plantations before the Civil War. It was a swampy bayou of a place, but one that was a refuge from the outside world, a world full of hostility towards black people. The town remained unincorporated. Haki says they made it their place. They uh, built a church. That's one of the first things they did. They had school, Mossville school. They had post office a general store that was basically what they had. This was a little small, small town. And to support themselves, they turned to the land. Mossville at its beginnings was not just a safe haven, but it was a place that fed people. Everybody had their own little garden, their vegetables. Oh man, she had field peas and butter beans, and she had okra, cucumbers, and just all kind of stuff, you know, potatoes, sweet potatoes. We had fig trees, we had pear trees. It was early in the morning, had to get up and pick figs with long sleeves on. You know, some people just ate it from the tree. Mama made jam. I know we had mustard greens, we had okra. I mean, we all, we all fish. Everybody in my family loved fishing or crabbing. They used to hunt frogs in uh, the ditches. 
on the side of the road, you know. At night, they come along driving slow and have their bright light on. So if they see a frog in the ditch, they'll gig him. And you know, they'd be eating the frogs and whatnot. We had the swamp behind my grandmother's house and they would go trapping and they'd trap turtles, you know, alligator turtles, we call them snappers. And they would also eat alligator. They had possums and coons, you know, and rabbit and squirrels. And this is what we did. When we didn't have money to go in a store and buy food. The land gave you everything you could need and the people gave you the rest. You know, your neighbors and your family gave you the rest. Oh, that meant everything. That meant freedom. That was how it was in Mossville for some 200 years. Until the refineries came in in the 40s, and then things started changing. During World War II, this part of Louisiana, Calcasieu Parish, became valuable to the war effort. The estuary that Mossville and Lake Charles sit on has a ship canal that provided access to the Gulf of Mexico and, consequently, the whole world. Continental Oil Company, which is now ConocoPhillips, built an oil refinery here to produce fuel for the war. And when the war ended, a whole industry of petrochemical plants began to congregate around the refinery, using its byproducts. This was during the Jim Crow era, so the black residents of Mossville did not have the voting rights or political power to weigh in on their new neighbors, but they did notice them. My grandmother had a swing, a porch swing. And when that old sound was going, it would just put me to sleep because this swing was just rocking me and that sound was just drawing me, you know, as if it had hypnotized me. Deborah Ramirez grew up in Mossville. The plants were an omnipresent part of life when she was a kid, including regular alarm sirens when something went wrong. And the thing would blow, and they would make us go half a block to the corner and stand until the all clear, because he would come through with the bullhorn saying plant blew up and we had to get out. Didn't care what time of the day it was, what time of the morning or night it was, we had to go down that road and stand until they give us the okay. And then people are passing. And you half dressed. So we had gotten to the point where us girls had started just sleeping in just regular clothes, you know, short and a t-shirt. Because we didn't want to be caught and being seen on the corner in our 90s because some of our little gowns and stuff was thin. That was just a normal part of life in Mossville. Damon Delafoss also grew up here, one of 12 kids in his family. I sat down with him and his older sister, whose name is also Deborah, on her windy porch in Lake Charles. They say there were a whole bunch of things about growing up that they only realized were wrong years later. The water was bad, too. I know that. You drink it at me, but just couldn't drink it because you, <laughs> you could smell it, you know. You didn't have a lot of water back then. No. I mean, you had the, the old rotten eggs, you know, the H2S. It, it was, mean, yeah, it was. Every time you opened the faucet, you had to let it run a while before you, yeah. you know, before you actually do anything with it. Damon and Deborah have fond recollections of picking fruit on their family's property. Their aunt Edna would hire them to pick figs, buckets of pears. But even that memory has been tainted. Like a lot of the pears and stuff that we picked off the tree, when like like on the on the roofs of the houses, mm-hmm. with all the pollution. I mean, the pollution was really bad back then. Like that house over there. See how black it is. Mm-hmm. All the roofs would get dark like that, and 
the, the fruit or the pears started turning black. The refineries also offered lifelines, though, in the form of employment. Deborah Ramirez's father worked for Conoco Oil Company. She still has his official badge with his picture on it. He worked for industry for decades. But he also witnessed some things when he worked in the plant because they would tell him to dump it in a ditch right by his own house. Not knowing, not knowing the poison, the poison, not knowing what it was going to cause as being a hazard in his own household. Deborah Ramirez believes it was God who first clued her into the pollution. This was decades ago, in the 1980s. After many, many years of living over in that area all my whole entire life, and one day I come home and my eyes open and I wake up and I say, what is that stuff over in that lot on the next lot over? Is somebody burning something? She smelled something burning and couldn't figure out what it was. She jumped off her front porch and walked around the block. I looked at people around the corner to see if my neighbor was burning anything, and they wasn't because we were allowed to have trash piles back there and burn debris. And I went to the front of the house, and I looked across to see if anybody was burning anything across, and nobody wasn't when I decided to call the plant. She called all the plants near Mossville to figure out the source of that burning stench. That was the start of a multi-decade battle that residents fought to understand what was going on in their environment. I was a housewife. I didn't know anything about environmentalism. I didn't know anything about chemicals. But he was getting me ready. God was getting me ready for the big day. Coming up, Mossville gets some scientific help in understanding what's happening in their community. That's ahead. There is the donor music. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois hails from Cajun country. He is the executive chef at Blue Smoke in New York City, but Louisiana is his home, and its cultural traditions are his food. And so at Blue Smoke, Jean-Paul shares Louisiana and the larger South with his New York community. You almost feel like it's your duty, it's your calling to say, this is who I am, this is where I'm from. And you know, that's what we're trying to do at Blue Smoke. And we're not, I'm not trying to make it a Cajun restaurant or a Louisiana restaurant, but it's inevitable that because of where I'm from and the food that I love, that I'm gonna have some of my inserts into there. No matter your Southern cravings, Blue Smoke is your New York outpost. They have two primary locations, Flatiron and Battery Park City, as well as spots at the JFK Airport and at City Field. Stop in for new twists on classic dishes. And while you're there, be sure to thank them for supporting this podcast. When Deborah Ramirez started to get clued into the contamination in Mossville in the 1980s, at least one Louisiana scientist was already on the case. My name is Wilma Subra. I'm president of Subra Company, which I founded in 1981 to provide technical assistance to community groups dealing with environmental and human health issues. Wilma is a chemist who worked for years developing toxicology programs for federal agencies like the EPA. She struck out on her own after noticing that communities weren't being given the data collected about them, and she thought they deserved to know what they were being exposed to. She says this part of Louisiana, Calcasieu Parish, has seen many different waves of pollution. 
And in the estuary here, there isn't a current, like in a river, to wash toxins downstream or out into the Gulf of Mexico. Wilma says here, they tend to stick around for a while. And then, because of the industrial facilities, it was detected that a number of chemicals were present not only in the estuary but in the fish. So we started seeing hexachlorobenzene and hexachlorobutadiene in the aquatic organisms in the estuary. These are serious chemicals, which are formed as byproducts in the manufacture of other chemicals. Hexachlorobenzene and hexachlorobutadiene are very toxic chemicals that are suspected to cause cancer, and they are part of the building blocks of the chemicals that are manufactured in the Calcasieu area. They're very long-lasting in the environment, so it's not something that enters the environment and is quickly degraded, and it bioaccumulates or builds up in the aquatic organisms. Things like fish, which Mossville residents had caught and eaten for generations, In the early 1990s, Wilma was trying to get the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, or DEQ, to establish a consumption advisory for the fish from this estuary. But the industry didn't want to have to admit that they caused the contamination, and the commercial fishermen did not want to admit that the catch that they were harvesting and selling was contaminated. Wilma went to all of these meetings with the DEQ. Talking about the health impacts, and the potential to impact the communities, or had already impacted the communities, and what was going on in those poor communities that were using subsistence fishing to put food on their table. They had no other source of food. They had no money. They'd go out along the estuary and fish, bring it home, and serve it to their family. As a result of that, the health department actually issued an advisory on how to cook contaminated fish. No way. And the advisory said that you broil it, and when the fat portion leaks out, it contains hexachlorobenzene, hexachlorobutadiene, and you let it drip away so that when you serve it, it doesn't have the fat portion. Between 1987 and 2000, the petrochemical industry reported discharging over 18 million pounds of toxic chemicals into the local waters, including an ethylene dichloride spill that was so bad a number of Mossville residents were bought out of their properties. But the water wasn't the only source of pollution in Mossville. A number of industrial facilities have been releasing dioxins into the air, which are invisible to the human eye. So dioxin is one of the most toxic substances at the smallest quantities but it's very persistent. It does not degrade. And because it's persistent, it bioaccumulates in the fish, in all types of organisms. Us too. And and, in the people who breathe it, the air that's contaminated with it, and who consume like the fish and the different fruits and vegetables from the yard that are contaminated. There were a lot of industrial facilities that released dioxins in the Mossville area, Wilma says. The dioxins are released a lot by the vinyl chloride manufacturing facility, by petroleum refineries, by power plants that are fueled with coal and industrial coke. In the late 1990s, both a local law firm and the Federal Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry came to Mossville and collected blood samples from residents. The people in Mossville had three times the national average of dioxin in their blood. They had an average of 68.3 parts per trillion, 
and the national average was 21 parts per trillion. That result was confirmed by another test in 2001. So on this second sampling that Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry did, they also looked at fruits, vegetables, and nuts in the yards of the Mossville individuals they sampled. So they wanted to see was their food crops that they had in their yard bioaccumulating. Dioxins were found in all of them. And not just any dioxins. Wilma even took all these tests a step further, looking at the chemical makeup of the dioxins found in Mossville residents' blood and in the dust and on their food, and matching them with the dioxins from specific plants in the Mossville area. They matched those from the ConocoPhillips refinery, the PPG facility, Entergy, and the Georgia Gulf and Sasol facilities. So we asked, as a result, that the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Environmental Quality require these five industrial facilities to reduce their emissions. We were not able to get that because they had air permits. They were allowed to release all these chemicals into the air. So, you know, I mean, you would think the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, these are, you know, major federal environmental laws we have in the United States. Like, these are the laws we go to if there should be ever a problem around water pollution, air pollution. That's Monique Harden, a New Orleans-based lawyer with Advocates for Environmental Human Rights. Well, the reality is, and what we found is that, you know, within those, it's very complex, it's very technical, we, we understand that, but they each are essentially uh, codified around the protecting the existing operations of an industrial facility and codifying it. Monique got involved in Mossville after residents like Deborah Ramirez began questioning the plants. They formed a group called MEAN for Mossville Environmental Action Now. Once they started talking about the plants with one another, they realized that lots of residents were having health problems. Cancer deaths, breathing problems, uh, reproductive issues, miscarriages were among those problems. And so residents began compare notes. You have this, I have this, right? And then, well, what if the pollution has something to do with it? I started looking and then I, I put it together. I said, okay, the first person I knew was Andrine Ford. She was in junior high school and she come down with uh, kidney cancer. That was the first one. And then I looked back beyond her, before her, it was a whole family of Jordans. Those people had blood issues bad. They were dying off young. Deborah Ramirez says once she started paying attention to it, these health problems were everywhere in Mossville. All these young women having partial or full hysterectomies, endometriosis. Then my daughter suffers with it. I was 26 years old when I had my total hysterectomy. Just looking at her own family, Deborah says. There have been so many deaths from cancer and other illnesses she worries are due to the contamination. When I lost my father, my sister Gwen, my sister Sandra, her husband Alan, my brother-in-law Ronald. Now, legally proving that there's a correlation between pollution and health problems is no small feat. But Wilma Subra did a health survey in Mossville that she released in 2009, 
which documented the maladies that residents report having and drew connections between them and chemical contaminants. And then these are the sources of facility in the Mossville area that release those chemicals. So here you have ConocoPhillips, you have the Nelson Power Plant, you have Georgia Gulf, you have PPG. And so I took each health impact category match the chemicals and match the industrial facilities. So it showed the cause and effect. These are the dots being connected, yes. Monique Hardin tried to show those dots being connected legally. She brought the Mossville case in front of an international human rights commission in an effort to get the U.S. to incorporate human rights into environmental protection laws so that future Mossvilles might have more legal recourse. Today, there are two large refineries in the Lake Charles area and more than 25 petrochemical plants that supply raw material to other companies. And as far as industry is concerned, pollution problems are solely in the past. And those problems have gone away. Larry Duracell is the executive director of the Lake Area Industry Alliance, which is supported by local plants and refineries. Many of those uh, problems that we had, say, 10, 15 years ago, were what I refer to as legacy issues. They were due to emissions from years and years ago when we, number one, didn't have the regulations we have now, and number two, did not have the technology to control the emissions the way we do today. So yes, there were issues, they're well-founded, and they have been addressed. Larry had a 32-year career in the industry and was a plant manager before he retired and formed the Alliance. He's proud of the work they do. Our products go into a lot of food packaging, like uh, Tupperware products, for example, a lot of medical products, uh, the plastic syringes that you see in the doctor's office and hospitals, uh, a lot of the plastic wrap, uh, automobile tires. Uh, and today, more and more plastics are going into the manufacture of automobiles. So a lot of the plastic that you see in the cars today are produced from polypropylene, which is produced here. So basically, like a lot of the stuff that make up the architecture of our lives as Americans starts with product that is produced here. Oh, absolutely. If nationwide, if we quit producing the kinds of things that are produced in this area, for example, our lives would be very, very different. When you talk to Larry about the petrochemical industry, this is what he sees. A supplier of vital materials for products we all use every day, the employer of 6,200 people directly, and about 5,000 more construction workers on new plants, he says. Larry insists that federal agencies have determined that emissions from area plants are no longer a problem. And, and I, for one, would not hesitate eating vegetables from their gardens or uh, fish from the uh, surrounding rivers. You know, and I've lived in this area off and on since 1966. And uh, when I retired, Although my ch none of my children live here, you know, our grandchildren, and we chose to stay in the area. So, you know, if I'd had concerns, there was nothing keeping me here. But it's a good community, and uh, we like the people, we like the area, and we decided to stay. And even folks who grew up in Mossville, people who love the place, credit the petrochemical industry with their livelihood. When I met up with Damon Delafoss, he just got off working the night shift at a plant. I wouldn't say it was the best job, but it was the most, I mean, that's the industry around yeah. here. I mean, and to get one of those jobs was, I mean, they, they pay well. 
I mean, I'm not, I don't regret it one bit. So Damon doesn't consider himself opposed to industry. I mean, it, it just seems as though these industries come in these predominantly black communities and they want to set up shop there. They're not going to go in the, the predominantly white side of town or the South Lake Charles or anything like that, which they're moving all over pretty much here now. I mean, the damage has been done to Mossville, and they getting them out of there. What Damon means is that as of a few years ago, Mossville entered a new chapter. Sasol, a South African petrochemical company, announced plans to build a couple of new facilities abutting the community. The company is offered to buy out and relocate residents. Mossville is now dotted with cement slabs, the remains of houses that Sasol bought and demolished. The roads are dominated by trucks going between plant construction sites. Damon says it's hard to reconcile Mossville as it once was with how it is now. I loved it, the place. I still do. <laughs> I, that's why I hadn't actually done what, you know, sold out to Sasol yet because, you know, I'm just trying to hold on to a little bit of memory and but it's it's pretty much gone now so what it where are we aki we are on smith street at the goat house back driving around mossville with hucky vincent he stopped by another one of the properties he inherited as part of his great-grandfather's estate aki's one of the residents who stayed so far he hasn't sold to sassall his relationship with this place is still strong, and he insists on living in it the way he has. A few years ago, he started this goat herd and has given over one property to them. Yeah, that's the goat house right there behind me. But guess what? The goat's not home. <laughs> and if the goats are not home, that means they've gotten out again. Uh, they're either up here or down here. You know, beyond the warning ethylene pipeline signs? Yes. <laughs> they can't read. <laughs> we cruise around this part of town in Hucky's truck, searching for them, until we catch a glimpse of their little black and white bodies through some trees. There they are. Oh, look at them. Yep, this is Hucky's method of herding goats by car horn. The goats are on the edge of a vacant lot, munching some grass. Rising up, just visible behind them, is one of the new sassol plants. You couldn't ask for a more poignant visual for the juxtaposition at the heart of Mossville today. An 82-year-old man in a pickup truck chasing his goats in front of a brand new petrochemical plant. Aki has one last stop for us in Mossville. We reach the end of a dirt road, but he keeps going, driving across a grassy meadow dotted with pink wildflowers and then down a path. Around us are a series of ponds. Aki says they formed after industry dug out this area for the dirt to build a plant a few decades ago. Now they're practically bayous, full of fish, and supposedly an alligator. Yo, yo, yo! Aki is looking for a couple of his friends who'd borrowed a boat from him. What yo? No telling which pond they're in because they can go from one to the other. Yo, yo, yo! So tell me again what they were coming out here for? Fish and uh, gators. 
food <laughs> for the day. <laughs> they fishing to eat. And they, they say that gate is big enough to feed about four families. With all that's happened in Mossville, it almost seems there's a surrender that comes when you live for years, decades, in a place of invisible environmental hazards. You just can't be on your guard all the time. It's too exhausting. If you can't reverse the damage and you don't want to move away, where does that leave you? When you look at it that way, maybe it's less surrender and more defiance. Some Mossville residents continue to live here the way they always have, not necessarily because they don't know about past contamination or don't believe it, but because they need to eat. And for a more emotional, intangible reason, they have long lived off this land, this place their ancestors built. This is their place. And so here, they stay. This piece was a collaboration with a group of New Orleanian filmmakers at work on a documentary film and interactive website about Mossville. There are lots of layers and characters to this story, and they'll go into many more of them than we were able to touch on in this piece. The Mossville team is director Alex Glustrom and producers Kate Matthews, Katherine Ryerson, and Daniel Bennett. To learn more about the documentary, go to mossvilleproject.com. That's mossvilleproject.com where you can sign up for updates and follow the project on social media. Extra special thanks to Kate Matthews for all her help in the reporting and production of this episode. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Our donor music is by Jazar. Gravy's managing editor is Sarah Camp Milam, and our intern is Dana Bialik. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... The story of Mossville, Louisiana, reinforces the importance of collecting community histories and sharing narratives. The Southern Foodways Alliance documents, studies, and explores cultural and culinary experiences. We work with individuals and communities to tell their stories. As you might imagine, we've done a good bit of work in Louisiana. Take, for example, our project based on Bayou Lafouche in Grand Isle. We listen to residents reflect on the tensions and compliments between the wetlands and the oil industry. To learn about their experiences, visit southernfoodways.org and review our Down the Bayou project. While you're on the website, consider buying an SFA membership. Member dollars support all our work, including this podcast. Coming up next on Gravy, Nashville is Music City. And city of kebabs? If you want baklava, that's the best place to get it. If you want something homemade, that's where they make it. It's like they use the ovens that they do at the house. So, it, you know, it's a, t- it's a huge taste difference. Tune in for that next time. And whenever you're next on iTunes, will you leave us a rating and a review? Those reviews don't just make me feel good. They help new listeners find us. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. Not war.